Oh, hi. Welcome in. You're here for the Echoplex Media Broadcast. Oh, great. Me too. Uh, my podcast, the Full Dash Closure Audiobook and Podcast, actually sponsors Echoplex Media. Yeah. We're also on, on podcatchers like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, uh, you name it. We're, we're on there. Yeah, it's about um, not just the gig economy, but corporate AI and the future of human employment and our economy. Uh, and it's it's really applicable to everybody. I think you'll be fascinated. So check it out. We've actually got uh, 14 episodes up now. So um, yeah, yeah, check that out. Let's uh, let's 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 watch Echoplex Media now. Let's see what Dave's up to. When they actually spend their time listening to this show, what does it mean? It means we're winning. I bite and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their purses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got everything I need I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee Just like my straight white male dad did to me So if I see a penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need I've got a pile of broken mirrors And I'm walking under ladders And I'm spilling tons of salt But to me that doesn't matter Cause my skin and my gender and my orientation Are the best things to have if you live in this nation I recommend it highly A penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Shit's gonna work out for me Cause I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Hey, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree We do the show live Every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Pacific, right here on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Media. If you're one of the many people who listens to this podcast and doesn't hang out for the live show, check it out sometime. Chat's real cool, most of the time. And if uh, anybody uncool shows up here, the people with the swords take care of it. Um, and, uh, you know, you can subscribe here, give me a little bit of money, throw some bits, whatever, whatever. And if you've never been to Twitch, this is a good landing place, especially if you're like over 30, because you might feel like, well, Twitch is for the kids, and it, it mostly is, but this is the... Uh, Twitch old folks home. If you want to support this project, you can go to eplex.store, grab a membership there. All week, the first month of your membership there is a half off, so you can check it out for half off. Much like Patreon, plus you get discounts on items in our shop. Also there, you can donate just directly, just give a direct donation, or you can buy stuff in the shop. 
Um, you could use the code NOWSPACE, all caps, for uh, 10% off at all times. If you know that, you know that. Um, HK's on adventures, and mostly just in the chat. Um, I'm Producer Dave, and you can find me on Grinder. So this week, we're going to go back to visit an old friend of the intellectual Dollar Tree, and by that, not somebody who would ever come on this show, and uh, somebody who I'm surprised has not blocked me yet on Twitter. Uh, it's Michael Shermer. I wasn't sure what to watch, and then I was like, well, what's Michael Shermer been up to? And then I saw his video that said, will we ever live in a post-race world? And I figure this is probably the biggest steaming pile of shit on YouTube right now. And so we're going to go ahead and watch it. Um, I have a little bit of thoughts on the idea of a post-race world. I think a lot of white people want that, which is odd because, uh, you know, in, in America, white people, especially white men, have the power. So why would they want a post-race world? Well, what I think they probably want is a world where they don't have to be bothered by people <laughs> that are different than them, right? Where they don't have to even consider any of the power structure stuff going on around race. I think a post-race world is impossible. I think the idea that I'm not going to notice that someone's skin tone is darker than me, somebody's facial structure is darker than me, and then I'm going to make assumptions about what their race is. I don't think that world's going away. So I think that being I'm almost positive that's the case. That being the case, maybe we should work on ourselves and work on putting our own biases in check, work on listening more to other people and work on ourselves because uh concept of race ain't going nowhere. Now here's Michael Shermer, um, alleged sex pest to talk about race. Hello everyone. It's Michael Shermer and it's time for another episode of the Michael Shermer show. I am your host. This is the special commentary edition. I won't. Oh yeah, this is going to be pretty special. Into a guest, but commenting on current events and controversial subjects. The first one we did last week was on trans matters and <clears throat> trying to define what is a woman anyway, as it was called. Got a huge response, uh, way more views and and listens than. Oh great, that's what he's going to focus on going forward now. Um, my normal podcast and tons of commentary. So I thought I'd do another one and pick another, you know, non-controversial subject like race. Oh boy. Have I lost my mind? Well, these are important yes. issues and we need to address them to the extent that we can through science, reason, rationality, enlightenment, humanism, and so on, which is my perspective. This one is on race matters. We did a whole. So I'm wondering how long until he mentions the bell curve issue of this here it is i'm unbelievably out of this issue in my office at the moment <laughs> but you can order it online it's a digitized version uh, in which i ask the question will we ever achieve a post-race world i in my 20s thought by the time i got to my 60s where i am now that we would have achieved that particularly after president obama but no uh unless you've been living on mars for the past several years you know that race still very much matters in america question is why uh, mostly because of racists i think and a half after the civil uh, war emancipated millions of slaves and outlawed the practice for good half a century after the civil rights act and corresponding legislation put an end to jim crow and more than a decade after the first black president was elected to the highest office of the nation why are we now not in a race blind society that's because we would have to be blind, blind. That's why. 
we would have to like not be able to fucking see. It's okay to like n- the goal isn't like uh, the, old, the old Colbert character when he was doing the satire show was like, uh, you know, I don't see race, but I can't dance. And they tell me I'm white. So I believe them. Right. That was a joke he was telling about like the idea that like we're, he was, it was a thing he said all the time to make fun of this concept right here. Well, to find out that's what this issue was about. Uh, I edited or I solicited articles on critical race theory, diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, anti-racism, and related subjects from over a dozen scholars and writers on the topics. Even though we offered maximal space, minimal editing, and a modest but respectable, for the size of our magazine anyway, an honorarium, I think I offered a thousand bucks, maybe it was 500 bucks, whatever, it's decent. Uh, most of the advocates of these ideas either declined or they just ignored me. I just usually got ignored, just no response at all. I went through uh, my regular trade publishing house who publishes um, m- most of my books, Macmillan, and, uh, and you know, I know people there. They put me in touch with the right publicists and so on. No luck. I received an introduction from the president of Chapman University where I teach uh, to a professor there who teaches these subjects, as well as their own dean of diversity, equity, and inclusion, who they just hired last year. None of that panned out. And then all the usual authorities in the field whose books routinely top the bestseller lists didn't even respond, even when I went through their book publicists on that, you know, and the anti-racism um, uh, scholars and the DEI and the Black Lives Matter uh, activists and so on. I couldn't get a response from anybody. For my podcast, which I usually reach like 100,000 people per episode, uh, I contacted, I, I was contacted by the publicist of a book by the sociologist Victor Ray is his name. His book is called On Critical Race Theory, Why It Matters and Why You Should Care. It's a, you know, explainer, an intro. Uh, it's really an a- academic book for anybody teaching the subject, which every university and college in America now teaches. And he's the man, right? And the publicist contacted me. So I thought, well, perfect. And since I was just about to start editing this issue, I thought maybe we could do an excerpt. I offered, you know, to give him a full page free ad in the magazine uh, and so on. And the publicist was you know, excited about this, of course. And then all of a sudden uh, I got that they didn't want to do it anymore. And uh, just Mr. Maybe they read your Twitter. Just uh, they changed their mind. They decided that they'd had enough media coverage of the book. It wasn't even out yet. <laughs> okay. All right. So, you know, make of that what you I will. mean, maybe they don't want to associate with you. Maybe they did some digging into you personally and were like, well, that guy's actually an asshole. Maybe my magazine and my show is just not big enough for publicists, even though that's not the case with other subjects. Yeah, it couldn't uh, be your character, Mr. Shermer. It couldn't be your character. Maybe they didn't want to talk to me because maybe I'm not uh, fully on board with it all, or I might be skeptical, or I might ask some critical questions. Uh, I just don't know. But, you know, I get a lot of people on the show with whom I don't agree. I get Christians. I get conservatives. Uh, You agree with the conservatives most of the time, probably except for, like, on a few issues. I bet this guy would say that he's for, like, universal health care and shit. Intelligent design creationists um, like uh, Stephen Meyer, uh, who is a intelligent design creationist and a Christian. He wrote a book called Return of the God Hypothesis, 
We talked for almost three hours, two and a half hours on the show. Uh, I don't mind talking to, to to people that with whom I disagree. I'm, I'm generally polite, respectful. I listen. Uh, so I don't know what the problem is here, but it's not just me. It's not just you know some middle aged white guy that they don't want to talk to. These people won't talk to John McWhorter or Glenn Lowry either, and they have big followings, and they are black, uh, but they do not. They don't want. Like these, these people are like academics. They're like workaday academics, uh, and they don't want to get fucking piled on by all of these kind of IDW and like, <clears throat> like bell curve ass people on like Twitter, or they don't want to ha have their name out there. And now all of a sudden, they're everybody's calling the dean of their school to try to get them fired for being like a like a race hustler or whatever the fuck. That's why they don't want anything to do with you guys. The line exactly on Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, and DEI. So maybe that's it. I don't know. I got some interesting commentary when I asked Stephen Beckner, one of my close friends and a, a, a longtime writer for the magazine, one of the best writers we've ever published. He wrote, for example, Straw Man on a Slippery Slope, the case against the case against postmodernism. <laughs> so we'd written a lot of critical commentary on postmodernism, so I wanted one that was uh, critical of the critics of postmodernism, which he wrote. Anyway, here was his response when I said, would you like to write an article, just kind of an overview, everything you need to know for and against critical race theory? Stephen writes back, unfortunately, I don't think I'm the right person to steal man CRT. These days I regard all of this as an altogether too narrow application of the precepts of postmodernist ideas. The aims of CRT proponents and what is more broadly termed wokeism are clearly tactical, not scholarly. The currency of that realm is moral indignation, loyalty testing, virtue policing, scolding, in-group status, preemptive condemnation, and political maneuvering. The only currency I have to offer is logic and rational argument, such as it is. Unfortunately, there is no recognizable exchange rate between these currencies. So that could explain it. But Stephen continues, because, and I want to read this. because It's amazing that all your friends agree with you what we're talking about here. We have reached a point where the very definition of CRT has become a political hot potato. You have the sympathizers arguing disingenuously that there is no trace of CRT in our culture outside college-level academia. And on the other side, the alarmist detractors claiming equally disingenuously that CRT is a cultural poison that destroys the very idea of Americanism. Well, it sounds like this guy could have written an article for a skeptic about it. Meanwhile, CRT, although he's just both sidesing it, not the left or that's right not that interesting versions, is actually a fairly limited, perhaps anticlimactic call for a type of affirmative, affirmative action within the justice system. Who doesn't want that? All of it feels like a divisive distraction from more thorny and intractable problems. I just don't see this as much of a culture war among the working classes. They've been racially and socially diverse for a long time, out of necessity. Most can't afford to quit a job just because a co-worker has some identity that they don't like, for example. It's the elites who are deploying this as a wedge issue in order to draw moral distinctions that enhance their status and justify their economic privilege. Close quote from Stephen. Thank you, Stephen, for that insight. People might not quit their job because there's somebody that they don't like, but people probably say, I don't know, I haven't... I haven't worked at a large enterprise in a while, but there's fucking racism and sexism crawling through 
um, all kinds of institutions, both public and private. You don't have to just quit. That's not like how you express your racism at work. You just do a race. You be a racist at work. Finally, after I pursued additional leads, we were able to put together an outstanding set of articles for this issue. Here it is again. You can order online at skeptic.com slash magazine. Jason Hill's soliloquy to America as the land of opportunity to all people, including people of color and immigrants like himself. And why he doesn't think whites owe anything to blacks. Stephen Bloom's assessment of Jane Elliott's famous blue eyes, brown eyes experiment with her third grade students in which she divided them by eye color to teach them about prejudice and what it teaches us about prejudice, race relations and race sensitivity training programs, which don't work and why they don't work. Chris Ferguson's analysis of the role of the news media in declining right race relations. I mean, if that's all you see on the news is of is a, riots and murders and police problems with blacks and so on. Of course, you're going to think race relations are horrible. Kevin McCaffrey, who's um, co-director of our. Uh, so is this just an advertisement uh, did a date for uh, his magazine? Race and policing. It's not as bad as we're uh, led to believe from the news media. Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, Lindsay's politically neutral historical overview of CRT. Uh, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay's politically neutral historical overview. Oh, get the fuck out of here. T critical race theory. I'll be mildly critical. Uh, Harriet Hall's column on race and medicine. Sadly, we lost Harriet this a uh, few months ago. And an evidence-based article by Maz, uh, Mazaran Banaji. Sorry, I mispronounced that. Susan Fisk and Douglas Massey. Making the case that even though most Americans today are far less racist in their social attitudes than they were decades ago, many baked-in social, political, and economic policies continue to operate and account for many of the black-white differences in income, wealth, housing, employment, health outcomes, longevity, and quality of life. Um, that article was a real eye-opener for me. I was skeptical of many of those claims for why there are these black-white differences, but they make a pretty strong case for these well, I guess the word we use is, would be systemic, but it's, it's in a different way, having to do with long-term political and economic um, uh, trends. Not That's what systemic racism is. It's long-term political and economic trends as it pertains to race. Shermer, could you just please like know, just fucking even just know the terms that you're using? I'm not even the skeptic. I don't have a magazine. We changed the name of our blog from magazine to the defamation times a while back because that's what someone called it on Twitter. Um, yeah, that's what systemic racism is. He just is like, oh, I don't know about systemic racism. And then he said, oh, but these things are true. And the things he said that were true or the things that he said that he was persuaded on were systemic racism. What does he think systemic racism is? Not um, this kind of subconscious uh, racism that uh, supposedly we all harbor. Um, and I'll deal with that in just a few minutes. That's not systemic racism. Just to be skeptical of, of that research that did not survive the replication crisis. Anyway, this was an eye-opener for me. I'm glad that we were able to do this. It's not the first time we've covered this issue in Skeptic. Uh, before, before this one on race... Huh? which is our redesigned magazine, Pat Lindsay's beautiful cover here. 
on uh, what science says about race. Did it evolve or is it a social construct? I love that cover. That's uh, a good, nice, nice piece of artwork. The bell curve. This oh, no. Oh, I called it. Oh, my God. I called it. How long until he mentioned the bell curve? 11 minutes, 24 seconds into this video. I called that shit right at the beginning of this. Uh, Richard Hernstein's book came out, The Bell Curve, in 1994. So we dedicated an issue to it. Again, there I had a hard time finding anybody to defend the book. I finally got Vince Sarich at UC Berkeley to write a defense of the book, but we published half a dozen critical articles of that. We did another one on race and sports. Why is it certain races do better in some sports but not others? Is it genetic? Is it cultural? So on and so forth. So um, we've dealt with this subject for a, a long time. And my very first book, Why People Believe Weird Things, paperback cover here, which was published in 1997. Uh, in a chapter on race and racism, I summarized the research to date on the subject at that time, which is still pretty solid research. Uh, quoting Luca Cavalli-Svorsa and his colleagues in their magisterial thousand-page book, which I could not find in my office. We moved the office and I lost a lot of my, got rid of a lot of my books, and I'm afraid that might have been one of them. It's this massive book called The History and Geography of Human Genes. Quote, from a scientific point of view, the concept of race has failed to obtain any consensus. None is likely given the gradual variation in existence. But we know races when we see them, don't we? It may be objected that the racial stereotypes have a consistency that allows even the layman to classify individuals. But the major stereotypes, all based on skin color, hair color and form, and facial traits, reflect superficial differences that are not confirmed by deeper analysis with more reliable genetic traits, and whose origin dates from recent evolution, mostly under the effect of climate and perhaps sexual selection. Close quote. For example, Australian Aborigines may look more like African blacks than Southeast Asians, but in this case, genetics overrides our perceptual classificatory schemata, because over tens of thousands of years, humans migrated out of Africa, then moved through the Middle and Far East, down Southeast Asia, and into Australia. Furthermore, Cavalli's Sforza and his colleagues observed that individuals within a group vary more than individuals between groups. And it's this between group differences that has everybody agitating about race. Here's the quote from Cavalli's Sforza. There is great genetic variation in all populations, even in small ones. This individual variation has accumulated over very long periods because most polymorphisms observed in humans antedate the separation into continents and perhaps even the origin of the species less than half a million years ago. The difference between groups is therefore small when compared with that within the major groups. Yeah, that's the, one of the big arguments against the bell curve. Like, I'm actually surprised that he didn't, that he's not here like defending the bell curve. He's giving you a lot of the good criticism of the bell curve or even within a single population, close quote. So here was my conclusion that I, I, I wrote in Scientific America, I mean, in uh, Why People Believe Were Things, and I still stand by it. Based on this science, since replicated, corroborated, and confirmed, I concluded that checking a box on a form for race, such as Caucasian, Hispanic, African American, Native American, Alaskan Native, or Asian American, is untenable because first, American's not a race. <laughs> and second, if we go back in time far enough, all humans descended from Africa. 
on an evolutionary time scale, we are all Africans. Since my maternal grandmother was German and my maternal grandfather was Greek and my fraternal grandparents were from Sweden and Denmark, all confirmed later by 23andMe. I did a 23andMe uh, cheek swab and then wrote one of my Scientific American columns about it. It's really interesting. All confirming what I already knew anyway from my parents and grandparents. And since I'm a member of the species Homo sapiens that origin, uh, or originated in Africa, I'm either an other or if such an amalgam could ever be allowed in such forms, I would tick off the box for African, Greek, German, Swedish, Dane, American, and proud of it. <laughs> I used to wear this shirt here from Richard Dawkins Foundation. Huh? Right? We're all Africans. On the back, it says, The Bible says modern people are the result of incestuous relations Cain and his brothers had with their sisters. Science says we're all descendants of Africans. I believe science. Okay, well, this is Richard's, you know, anti or anti-religion or, you know, science over religion thing. But I always like the shirt because I think it's racially inclusive. I'm not sure I'd wear it anymore. I used to wear that shirt in the early, uh, maybe mid-2000s. Um, I think somebody might accuse me of, of um, uh, co-opting or what's the word? Um, culturally appropriating uh, by claiming I'm black or something. I don't know. Anyway, I probably would not wear that. I wouldn't wear that fucking cringe-ass shirt either. A few comments here uh, about the bell curve. This generated a lot of heat because people are interested in the group differences between black and white. Not that Asian Americans score 15 points higher than white Americans, but that white Americans score... 15 points higher than black Americans. Um, but this is, this is the thing that I don't like the, I don't like the idea that you can give people like a couple tests or a series of tests and just decide how fucking smart they are. I think it's fucking stupid. I think that's like the, the, the fundamental like reason that I think that the bell curve was a flawed book. IQ. Anyway, that was the, the figures back um, when the bell curve was published in the mid nineties. Um, those gaps have closed up a little bit, uh, but I encourage you to, to watch my podcast episode number two, 227 with Richard Nisbet, who's a one of the giants of, of psychology. And I asked him about this uh, matter, and he's because he, I know he, he's done a lot of research in this area. You know, it's about an hour into the episode. Basically, he cites Eric Durkheimer, who's like the world's leading uh, expert on behavior genetics and IQ and so forth, uh, who found that within a particular group, let's say, Children's IQ in upper middle class families is about 80% accounted for by genetics. That is, comparing children within upper middle class families, most of their differences can be attributed to genes. What? But when you compare upper middle class kids to those from low socioeconomic classes, genes don't matter because in a bad environment, it doesn't matter how good your genes are, intelligence cannot be nurtured. That's oh, I don't know. That's some eugenic shit. I don't like that either. He was speaking, so I just transcribed it so it can read a little bit easier here. The analogy often uh, uses with plant height, the height of plants. If you compare plants of the same species, both growing in rich and nourished environments, they get a lot of water and sunshine, for example, in rich dirt. The difference in their heights will be primarily attributed to their genes. But if you compare plant heights between plants grown in rich and in nourished environments to those grown in impoverished environments that have little to no water or sunshine and crappy dirt, the differences are primarily environmental. 
And the other line of evidence. It's like also the 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 plant thing. Also, there's luck. There's like luck. Like just because the soil has water in it doesn't mean that every part of the soil has the right amount of water to nourish a plant, and that the nutrients they're not going to be like evenly distributed throughout the soil. So there's some luck involved in this as to where are the plants' roots. Uh, is the right amount of water where the plants' roots are? Where are the leaves of the other plants? Did one of the plants' leaves just happen to block the sun from another plant that, in a way, even though they're more or less, they were more or less the same height when that leaf grew? Like this is, there's just so much variance and luck that is that goes on in this stuff that that is just not accounted for. There's just, and that's probably true for humans too why it's not genetic these group differences between black and white are not genetic or if you want to go in the other direction between white americans and asian americans it's not genetic it's culture it's environment is the flynn effect so i wrote about the flynn effect this is james flynn's uh, discovery that iq scores are going up about three points every 10 years uh, which he discovered in the 1930s now called the flynn effect interestingly that term was coined by uh, charles murray and Richard Hernstein in their book, The Bell Curve. That's an astonishing increase of about 30 IQ points over 100 years. I'm reading here from The Moral Arc, where I, I wrote a section in my chapter on reason. Uh, this translates into an improvement of two standard deviations of 15 points each from an average IQ of 100 to a very superior score of 130. IQ scores remain the same, however, as they are regularly normed upward to account for the Flynn effect, which is how Flynn discovered it in the first place. He was looking at the data from the companies that produce these IQ tests. Were it just the case that we're getting better uh, at taking tests, then the scores would have been improved across the board, but that's not what happened. Except the that the test, the test they're describing is modified every, every few years to try to sort of account for things to make it so that the average score remains around 100. Cases and IQ scores have been almost exclusively in two subsets or subtests that most require abstract reasoning, similarities, and matrices. The subtests of information, arithmetic, and vocabulary have hardly budged at all. Those are the ones you can study for. You can practically memorize vocabulary words, review your geometry and algebra, and so on, like what we all do for the, took the GRE to get into grad school. The subtests called similarities ask questions such as, what do dogs and rabbits have in common? If you answer, both are mammals, says Flynn, you're thinking like a scientist in classifying organisms by type, which is an abstraction. If you said you use dogs to hunt rabbits, you're thinking concretely, imagining a tangible use for a dog. According to Flynn, for the past century, people have learned to think more abstractly than concretely. Matrices are abstract figures that require determining a pattern and then deducing the missing piece in the pattern. So, for example, here is one of these classic matrices here. So you're supposed to look at the pattern sequence of those and then down here, pick the one that goes in the missing box up here, right? So you just look at what the pattern is, you deduce the pattern and find, well, that's it's number whatever it was, okay? And it's those, and here is the data for the increase in IQ. You can see that the overall IQ has gone up a little over 15 points uh, since 1950, but not down here in the arithmetic vocabulary, but up here in similarities and matrices. What is the explanation for this? 
Most likely improvement is a function of more years in school, more technologies in society. More so this is some jobs, fucking phrenology shit. He's, for people to he's like married to the idea that these IQ tests are like accurate measurements of uh, your intelligence. And I just don't think anybody's been able to prove that. Conceptual tasks as our economy has shifted from agrarian and industrial to information based. Instead of manipulating plows, cows and machinery, Many of us are now manipulating words, numbers, and symbols. Even in science classes, the trend has been shifting away from a rote memorization of facts about nature to reasoning about nature's laws and processes, content, and process. Flynn himself attributes the effect to an accelerating capacity for people to view the world through scientific spectacles. He contrasts the pre-scientific world of his father with the post-scientific world of today through a poignant anecdote about how he and his brother tried to mitigate their father's typical prejudice of his generation through a thought experiment. What if you woke up one morning and discovered that your skin had turned black? Would that make you any less of a human being? Well, no, but I would assume there was some kind of medical reason for that, and I would go see the doctor. It wouldn't be that it was bad to have darker skin. It would just be that like something was dramatically different about my body when I woke up than when I went to sleep. And so Flynn and his brother asked their father this question. The senior Flynn shot back. Now that's the stupidest thing you've ever said. Who ever heard of a man's skin turning black overnight? <laughs> the Flynn patriarch was intelligent, but not ed educated, Flynn explained, in attributing the effect to nature, not nurture. Sorry, to nurture, not nature. The anecdote of sim is symbolic of larger social trends. Each generation is producing not only better abstract reasoners, but better moral reasoners as well. Okay, anyway. But that's just that's that he's reading that from his own book. Is attributed to genes. And that's like your opinion. Like whether or not people are more moral is your opinion. Decades. It's entirely cultural. Anyway. Okay, my motivation in this whole exercise of writing about race, doing this commentary, editing our special issue of Skeptic on it, is that I thought in my lifetime we could achieve or at least approach in an asymptotic curve. You know, the curves that go up, they don't quite reach the ceiling, but they keep going up. Uh, is a post-race society in which such superficial characteristics as, quoting Cavalli Sforza, skin color, hair color and form, and facial traits would be considered the least important thing to know about a person. In my 2015 book, The Moral Art, here it is again. Love that cover they designed for me. Um, I suggest that we may had made so much moral progress over the centuries that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Was at last coming true? And so I concluded we are living in the most moral period in our species history. Why? More people in more places more of the time have more rights, freedoms, liberties, literacy, education, and prosperity than at any time in the past. We have many social and moral problems left to solve, to be sure. And the direction of the arc will hopefully continue upwards long after our epoch. And so we are by no means at the apex, but there is much evidence for progress and many good reasons for optimism. This is like a Steven Pinker style argument, or it's <clears throat> it's almost it's approaching the dumb fucking argument they sometimes make on Fox News, actually, where it's like, oh, how can you be? It's like, a, how can you be poor? You have a big screen TV and a refrigerator, right? It's sort of that. It's like, well. Yeah, I mean, people's lives are getting a little bit better and the, the average person like in America has more like conveniences and stuff, but it doesn't account for all kinds of other things like the, the climate catastrophe, etc. 
and that the gap between the rich and the poor is expanding. That's how I closed that book. How naive I was. <laughs> Government, corporate, and academic collection of data on all matters of race has become ubiquitous, driven further along by racial and gender online sensitivity training programs, such as those that my university requires all of us to take. <laughs> I've had so many of these. These are the dumbest tests you can imagine. Well, you, most of you have probably had to have, if you're in corporate world, you have to take them as well. Uh, here's my paraphrasing of a sample question. If you overhear someone telling a racially or se sexually off-color joke, you should A, repeat the joke to others, B, ignore the incident, C, intervene and explain why telling such jokes is inappropriate, and D, report it to human resources. The answer is always D. <laughs> what about C, then D? I like C, then D. You'd be like, hey, that's hell of racist. What the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you doing this at work? And then you go talk to somebody about it. Yeah, yeah actually. Conversations about and coverage of race and race relation, race-related incidents are omnipresent in our culture, from social media to mainstream media. I'd like to tell a story when my wife, Jennifer, moved to the United States from Germany uh, over a decade ago now. She was stunned by the amount of race talk one hears everywhere, as if race is the most pressing of all American issues. DRT, critical race theory literature, is both riding and feeding this cultural momentum, loaded as it is with discussions about racial group differences on everything from income and family wealth to the percentage of black professors in STEM fields. Okay, what percentage of STEM professors have brown eyes, blue eyes, hazel eyes, and green eyes? Pace Jane Elliott's famous experiment. How many brunettes, blondes, and red-headed professors are there in STEM? Who knows? Who cares? But there hasn't... Yeah, but that you're, I, I don't think I should, I don't even think I have to say why, like, these are different questions. Like, we don't map a lot of fucking nasty, sh we haven't mapped a lot of nasty shit onto the color of your eyes, like, over the course of American history. Why are these superficial characteristics considered meaningless, except perhaps in Hollywood and dating sites, whereas equally frivolous features like skin color, hair color, and form, and facial traits are proxies for everything from intelligence and personality to moral worth and social value. Yeah, that's actually the problem. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the problem. The answer is obvious. Race and racism, as manifested in slavery, segregation, lynchings, Jim Crow, profiling, and police brutality, is America's original sin, whereas we have no history of prejudice and bigotry based on eye or hair color with the possible exception of blonde and ginger jokes. Here I recommend Tim Minchin's song, Prejudice. Just go to after this. Yo, Tim Minchin probably does not like Michael Shermer. Tim Minchin, M-I-N-C-H-I-N, comma, Prejudice, and the song will come Tim up. Tim Minchin's pretty woke. Genius. So I'll just read just a few of the lyrics here. So he starts off with this kind of dark blue uh, lighting with kind of a subdued tone. In oh, bisexual modern, lighting. In our free-spoken society, there is a word that we still hold taboo. A word with a terrible history of being used to abuse, oppress, and subdue. Just six seemingly harmless letters arranged in a way that will form a word. With more power than pieces of metal that are forged to make swords. 
a couple of G's, an R and an E, an I and an N. Just six little letters all jumbled together have caused damage that we may never mend. And it's important that we all respect that if these people should happen to choose to reclaim the word as their own, it doesn't mean the rest of us have a right to its use. Anyway, and then he kind of smiles, red lights come up on, on stage, and the shift in music is much more upbeat, and he sings, only a ginger can call another ginger ginger. So listen to me if you care for your health. You won't call me a ginger unless you're ginger yourself. Yo, like, yo, missing the point. Like, you, the point is this, that he's, he's, it's absurd. What Michael Shermer doesn't understand the song that he's reading the lyrics from. Yeah, absolutely. I understand completely is that we all thought it was a different word. And then we, we found out that, that he meant ginger. And it's kind of funny and it kind of, it's, it's because he didn't mean the other word because he didn't want to write a song about the other word because you don't really, it's probably not, you don't want to write a song about that word. What the fuck? Yo, you missed the point, buddy. And it was, that wasn't even, it is, the point isn't even that complicated. Only a ginger can call another ginger, ginger. Tim mentions a ginger. Anyway. I, 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 sometimes I think humor is a good way to deal with these hypersensitive subjects. Anyway, my race-blind utopianism of the night. Except that Tim mentioned isn't going to write a song about the N-word. This was set back a bit in 2006 when I first encountered the Implicit Association Test, the IAT, that purports to reveal hidden racist attitudes, among other prejudices. The IAT was developed in the 1990s by social psychologist Anthony Greenwald, Mazarin Banaji, who I mentioned earlier, and Brian Nozick, who claim that their instrument reveals that we not only favor white over black, but young over old, thin over fat, straight over gay, able over disabled, and more. I took the test myself, as you can yourself. Just go to, just type in IAT and it'll pop up and you can take it. Here's how it works. The race test, for example... First, ask you to sort by pressing keys black and white faces into one of two categories, European-American and African-American. Simple. Next, you're asked to sort a list of words. Joy, terrible, love, agony, peace, horrible, wonderful, nasty, so on. Into either good or bad. It's also easy to do. Then, the words and the black and white faces appear on the screen one at a time for you to sort into either African-American, good, or European-American. European-American, bad. The word joy, for example, would go into the first category, while a white face would go into the second category. This sorting goes noticeably slower. Finally, you're then tasked with sorting the words and faces into the categories European-American, good, or African-American, bad. Distressingly, I was much quicker to associate words like joy, love, and pleasure with European-American, good, than I did with African-American, good. The test assessment of me was not heartening. Quote, here's what it said. Your data suggests a strong automatic preference for European-American compared to African-American. The interpretation is described as automatic preference for European-American if you responded faster when European-American faces and good words were classified with the same key than when African-American faces and good words were classified with the same key. 
Wow, does this mean I'm a closeted racist? And since most people, including African Americans, score similar to me on the IAT, does this mean we're all racist? Well, no, it's not. It's 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 the test is they've made it public so that it's that you think about it, right? They're not. They didn't. They didn't make the test public to scold you. They made the test public so that you fucking think about it, Mister Shermer. The Project Implicit website, which is what this is called at Harvard, suggests that it does. Quote, when we relax our active efforts to be egalitarian, our implicit biases can lead to discriminatory behavior. So it is critical to be mindful of this possibility if we want to avoid prejudice and discrimination. Okay, at the time, I accepted the charge. The IAT, however, implicit association test, did not survive the replication crisis. There are at least five problems with the test one unconscious states of mind are notoriously difficult to discern and require subtle experimental protocols to elicit two associations between words and categories may simply be measuring familiar cultural or linguistic affiliations yes blue and sky faster than blue and donuts does not mean i unconsciously harbor a pastry prejudice Three, negative words have more emotional salience than positive words, so the IAT may be tapping into the negativity bias instead of prejudice. Four, IAT researchers have been unable to produce any interventions that can reduce the alleged prejudicial associations. They don't have to. The thing is, first of all, it gets put on the internet, right? So it's got to be like a simplified version of it where you're... The controls aren't all there because it's like on the internet. It's like almost like pop psychology. But the the point of it is to be thought provoking. It's not that the point of it is is that you've gotten some concrete result from some test you've taken on the internet. Yo, a 2016 meta analysis by Patrick Forsher and his colleagues, published on the Open Science Framework, examined 426 studies on 72,000 subjects and found quote little evidence that changes in implicit bias mediate changes in explicit bias or behavior. In other words, none of this makes any difference. And finally, five, the IIT does not predict prejudicial behavior. A 2013 meta-analysis by Frederick Oswald and his colleagues... But how do you find out if people like... the? How do you mean it doesn't... How do you find out... What do you do? You fucking follow somebody around with a drone all the time? Personality and social psychology one of the most prestigious peer-reviewed journals in our field, concluded, quote, that the IAT provides little insight into who will discriminate against whom. Here is my conclusion then about all of this in my Scientific American column on it. For centuries, the arc of the moral universe has been bending toward justice as a result of changing people's explicit behaviors and beliefs, not on ferreting out implicit prejudicial witches through the spectral evidence of unconscious associations. But that's the thing is like when you, if I took that test and I got similar results to Shermer, I'd be like, well, that's something for me to think about. I wouldn't like think that it was accusing me of being like a, just a fucking, just a racist or like a bigot or whatever. That wouldn't be my assumption at all. I would think that I would be like, oh, it's time to, time to think about this stuff a little bit. And I think that's what it's for on the internet. I also think that like, if you're taking it on the internet, there's you're just missing a lot of the controls that probably exist for it if you take it in a clinical setting. Although bias and prejudice still exist, 
They aren't remotely as bad as a mere half century ago, much less a half millennia ago. We ought to acknowledge such progress and put our energies into figuring out what we have been doing right and then do more of it. But that's not to the exclusion of figuring out what we've done wrong. ...about the IT, even more detailed than mine. And so we come to the crux of the matter. Does the IAT really capture unconscious prejudices? Can the test predict whether people will actually behave in a biased or discriminatory way? The evidence is now pretty clear that the answer to both are no answers. When people are asked to predict their responses toward different groups in the IAT, they are highly accurate, regardless of whether they are told that implicit attitudes are true prejudices or culturally learned associations. People's scores aren't reliable either. They might score highly biased one week and get a different result two weeks later. And as for the IAT's ability to predict behavior, the ultimate measure of any test's scientific validity, meta-analyses of hundreds of studies on many thousands of people, find that the evidence leaking IAT scores with behavior is weak to non-existent. Right, it's... When, In the but final the, analysis, Carol... Continues. I just, I just feel like the the point of it isn't really. It's he's like trying to make this this thing something that it's not. I mean, it seems almost so obvious that you shouldn't have to say it. That the point of it is to to make you think about it. That's it. I think what is most problematic about the IAT is that it directs people's attention to their supposed unconscious feeling feelings, leaving many puzzled and worried that they might be awful racists without knowing it and without knowing what they're supposed to do about it. It confuses normal cognitive biases with bigotry, and it locates the problem... What, what, who decides which one is which? ...conscious minds, not in the systemic patterns of racism that deserve our far greater attention and search for remedies. Okay, one final thought on this, because maybe we're not even able to ferret out these unconscious biases except through internet searches. So I wrote a column on this in Scientific American, which I'll summarize here. What if, however, the Russian novelist Theodore Dostoevsky was right when he observed in his 1864 Notes from the Underground, every man has reminiscences from which he would not tell to everyone but his, only his friends. He has other matters in his mind which he would not reveal even to his friends but only to himself, and that in secret. But there are other things which a man is afraid to tell even to himself, and every decent man has a number of such things stored away in his mind. If true, one possible way to measure it is through internet searches. So here I'm leaning on the research from Seth Stevens Davidovitz, who's been on the show a couple times. Because he worked at Google as a data scientist, and so that is his expertise. He's written a couple books on this subject. That is, to what extent can we ferret out prejudices from what people search for online. Here's what he says in his 2017 book, Everybody Lies. In the pre-digital age, people hid their embarrassing thoughts from other people. In the digital age, they still hide them from other people, but not from the internet, and in particular sites such as Google and Pornhub, which protect their anonymity. Employing big data research tools allows us to finally see what people really want and really do not what they say they want and say that they do, particularly with pollsters. People may tell pollsters that they're not racist, for example, and polling 
data do indicate that bigoted attitudes have been in steady decline for decades on such issues as interracial marriage, women's rights, and gay marriage, indicating that conservatives today are more socially liberal than liberals were in the 1950s. Let me repeat that again. Conservatives today are more socially liberal than liberals were in the 1950s. Astonishing. Using the Google Insights tool in analyzing the 2008 presidential election, however, Stevens Davidovitz concluded that Barack Obama received fewer votes than expected in Democrat strongholds because of still latent racism. Okay, in what follows, I'm going to use say the N-word rather than just say N-word. Wait, what? Because this is what's uh, printed in these uh, books no. that I'm reading. No, no. For example, Stevens Davidovitz found that 20% of searches that included the word Oh, no, no. Jokes. And that on Obama's first election night, about one in 100 Google searches with Obama in them included KKK or In some states, there were more searches for president than first black president, he reports. And not uh, All right, that's enough. I just can't. I can't even fucking. Nope, 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 nope. I'm going to cut this one a little bit short here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i thought i thought he was gonna do the bell curve but i i think he just did that so that he could go i'm sorry i didn't i don't i didn't know i didn't know that i don't want that i don't want that word on my channel or on my podcast don't like it don't want it um so that's uh that's it that's the end of the fucking show this week i can't even do it uh this has been the intellectual dollar tree um this is boomers by periscope and uh i'm sorry don't even give me money fuck it i'll be back for red light
every Saturday is Catterday on Echoplex Media, and not only are we posting fucking cats, we invite all content creators to join our open panel. Visit echoplexmedia.com slash panel to learn how to join. Every third Saturday is Operation Catterday, where we cover this week and last year and play the best clips from the cast of conspiracy characters that Now Space has learned to loathe. The show starts at 8 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia. Find our full schedule at echoplexmedia.com.